service can be found in the first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis. We turn this morning to the third chapter uh, to uh, consider uh, this familiar uh, but blessed chapter in Scripture, sobering but blessed at the same time for our Advent uh, message today. Genesis chapter 3, we'll be reading uh, the first 20 verses. Let us hear the word of the Lord together. Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Yea, hath God said, Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God hath said, Ye shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. And the serpent said unto the woman, Ye shall not surely die. For God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof, and did eat, and gave also unto her husband with her, and he did eat. And the eyes of them both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together, and made themselves aprons. And they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God amongst the trees of the garden. And the Lord God called unto Adam and said unto him, Where art thou? And he said, I heard thy voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. And he said, Who told thee that thou wast naked? Hast thou eaten of the tree whereof I commanded thee that thou shouldst not eat? And the man said, The woman whom thou gavest to be with me, she gave me of the tree, and I did eat. And the Lord God said unto the woman, What is this that thou hast done? And the woman said, The serpent beguiled me, and I did eat. And the Lord God said unto the serpent, Because thou hast done this, thou art cursed above all cattle, and above every beast of the field. Upon thy belly shalt thou go, and dust shalt thou eat all the days of thy life. And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. And it shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. Unto the woman he said, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception. In sorrow that thou shalt bring forth children, and thy desire shall be to thy husband, and he shall rule over thee. And unto Adam he said, Because thou hast hearkened to the voice of thy wife, and hast eaten of the tree which I commanded thee, saying, Thou shalt not eat of it, saying, uh, Cursed is the ground for thy sake. In sorrow uh, thou shalt eat of it all the days of thy life. Thorns also and thistles shall it bring forth to thee, 
and thou shalt eat of the herb of the field. In the sweat of thy face thou shalt eat bread till thou return unto the ground, for out of it thou wast taken, for dust thou art, and unto dust shalt thou return. And Adam called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. Thus far the reading of God's holy and precious word, and may he bless. Dear congregation, we well know, children, you know as well, that approximately one week we celebrate Christmas again. And Christmas is a special time of the year when we reflect upon with gratitude and with thanksgiving as well the wonderful story, the wonderful truth that Jesus Christ was born and was laid in the manger in Bethlehem. And in these weeks, of course, that lead up to uh, Christmas time, we call these Advent weeks. The word Advent, it comes from the Latin term Adventus, which simply means coming or arriving. And embedded in that whole idea of coming and arriving is this sense of immediacy, uh, that Jesus Christ is coming He was coming all the way through, promised all the way through the Old Testament, and he arrived, and he is coming again. And Advent season is meant to cause the church, the faithful church, to look forward to the commemoration again of the first arrival of Jesus when he was born as Uh, that one who was born under the law uh, to redeem those, as Paul writes it, who were born under the law. And it's also meant to cause the church to look forward to that time when he will arrive again. As uh, the writer to the Hebrews puts it in Hebrews 9, verse 28, when he will arrive the second time, without sin, or that means apart from sin, unto or for the purpose of salvation. And historically, uh, the commemoration of Advent has been something that has gone on within the Christian church for, for many, many, many decades. Actually, if you, if you dig deep enough, you can find that the earliest records of of holding Advent uh, were around the year uh, 335 A.D. Uh, in the Church of France, in the churches in France, and it was quite a common practice for uh, over a thousand years, some 1,200 years, and then in uh, the year 1578, the practice of commemorating Advent was almost done away with, uh, particularly within the Protestant church, because there were many church leaders who, who feared that there was too much focus on the festivities uh, about Advent and about Christmas, uh, rather than on the Christ child himself. And so, for about 300 years, uh, the practice of, of Advent 
uh, that we take so for granted today was not a common practice in uh, Protestant churches. Uh, And only uh, around the year 1877, uh, so just a little under 150 years ago, it was once again established, particularly within the Protestant Christian church. And I believe that's a good thing because it's good uh, to, to pause amidst all the busyness, amidst all the commercial, commercialization that goes on around us from year to year to be still and to know that the Lord is God. To be still and to know that Jesus is God incarnate, that he is the one who has come to seek and to save the lost, the one who came to bear the sin of many, so that boys and girls, so that teenagers, men and women, seniors, that we might, by the very grace of God, be born again. To say it in the the words of the well-known hymn and Christmas carol that we commonly sing, Hail the heaven-born Prince of Peace, Hail the Son of Righteousness, Light and life to all he brings, Risen with healing in his wings, Mild he lays his glory by, Born that we no more may die, born to raise us from the earth, born to give us second birth. Jesus came to this earth so that souls like you and I could be born again and one day be raised forever to be with him in glory. It's a wonderful wonderful truth. And today, this morning, we want to look at uh, the earliest promise in the Bible, uh, the earliest promise really in world history, uh, that speaks to us of Jesus, the Advent Savior, and that he would come in the fullness of time, that he would crush the head of the old serpent, Satan, or the devil. And so the words of our text you can find in the passage that we read together, Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, familiar words, I trust, for for us all, and I will put enmity between thee and the woman, between thy seed and her seed, and it shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. Our theme for uh, this message is therefore Advent, the first gospel promise, the first gospel promise. Dear congregation, Genesis 3 and verse 15 is sometimes referred to as the euangelion, the mother promise, or more commonly, the proto-evangel, proto, that is first evangel, that is good news. It's the first time that we hear declared from the very mouth of God that the wonderful gospel so early on in world history. But as we listen to the language of this very text itself, it, it sounds really to the 21st century ear and really to the ear of anyone who lived in any century, somewhat obscure, I trust, and and even maybe a bit confusing. 
maybe for, for the children, uh, confusing, maybe those who are more familiar with it, it, it's clearer for us, but I will put enmity, God says, between thee and the woman, between thy seed and her seed, it shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. And so to make sense of this text and to, to consider this text this morning, we ought to look at, at three basic vantage points of it, or three perspectives of it. At first, we want to see it in its all-important context. The context of this familiar verse is, is very important. Then we ought to consider, secondly, its meaning. Spend a bunch of time there and consider what the text actually means. And then, uh, with that, and concluding as well this morning, some words of application of how these truths, these timeless truths, still apply to us today. And so the context, the meaning, and then the application of that meaning. Genesis chapter 3 is sometimes referred to as the darkest chapter in the Bible. And that, of course, is because we find recorded in Genesis 3 that very, very sobering truth that Adam, as our representative, our federal head, he ate of the forbidden tree that God told him clearly in understandable communication that he must not eat of it. Unless he eat of it, he will die. But Adam, as our representative, ate of that tree And so by one man, sin entered into the world. And death, spiritual death, by sin, Paul tells us, Romans 5 and verse 12. He plunged the entire human race into original sin. We are all spiritually dead in trespasses and sins. It's a very dark and a very, very sobering reality. And we find its inception, its beginning here in Genesis chapter 3. But children, you know that it wasn't always so, was it? Because God created all things perfectly. In Genesis 1 and 2, we have those wonderful and glorious truths in the Bible that in the beginning all things were absolutely perfect. God, out of nothing, He formed the world. He created uh, the very heavens, the firmament. Uh, He brought the, the land masses together. He created the seas. And then He began each day creating exactly what He wanted to create, that he had destined to create. And every day at the close of those 24-hour periods, he said, it is good, it is good, it is good, it is good, it is good. And on the sixth day, he created the animals. And then at the very final act of creation, God, he created mankind in his own image. And Paul identifies that as being 
knowledge, righteousness, and holiness. And so everything was absolutely perfect in the garden. God, he brought the dust together. He created that living, first living human being. He breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And God, by the power of his word, he created Adam, the first fully adult human male ever to walk on the face of the earth. And then he gave Adam, didn't he, that wonderful and honorable task of of naming the animals. I've often wondered what that must have been like. There's the, the hippopotamuses going past him. And he says, that one's a hippopotamus. That one's a giraffe. And with perfect knowledge, unfallen knowledge, he saw the giraffe, he named it, the butterfly, the common worm, everything. And he sees them in pairs. He sees them male and female. And Adam must have sensed it as well, that he's just a man. But more than Adam sensing it, we read that God saw that it was just Adam. And so before the fall in paradise, God declares there is something that is not good. And he said, it is not good that man is alone. I will create a helpmeet for him, a fitting helper for him. And so God is that great anesthetist. He puts Adam, doesn't he, into a deep sleep? And then as a divine surgeon, he opens up his side, he takes up a rib bone out of him, and he seals it back up perfectly. And out of that one rib bone, he creates a perfect female counterpart for Adam. He creates the woman. And he causes Adam to wake up, God brings them together. It's a perfect marriage. A marriage in paradise. Made in paradise. And Adam is given a task implicitly. We can read from Genesis chapter 2. From the Lord as he brings them together. uh, To identify uh, this person now. The second person in world history before him. And so he names her or identifies her, not as Eve, quite yet. He will call her Eve after the fall, but he identifies her as woman, we are told in uh, chapter 2. And she is a fitting help for him, a help meet, a fitting help for him. And everything was perfect, absolutely perfect in paradise. The perfect marriage, two perfect people, male and female. But that perfection was not to last. It was shattered very soon after. And we read of the tragic story of the fall as part of the Genesis 3 account. And in a certain way, it, it happens in a, in a strange way because the devil, 
who had previously fallen uh, from uh, being an angel in heaven. Uh, We read that in Isaiah 14, uh, verses 12 through 14. He had had lifted himself up in pride, and uh, he took with him uh, several other angels, and he, as the chief uh, the chief devil, if you will, he took many, many fallen angels, or the angels, some angels fell uh, with him. And now he comes to this perfect paradise, and in a very literal, uh, but unique, uh, but actual way, he embodies a serpent, a snake. And he has been given the ability to communicate in understandable human language through this snake. Matthew Henry, he puts it this way, The devil, who only made use of the servant, serpent rather, as his vehicle in this appearance, but was himself the principal agent, speaks through the serpent's Mouth, And so you have the one record in history of a snake talking, a serpent talking. But it's not really the serpent itself. It's Satan talking through the serpent to this woman who would later be named Eve. And very strangely, she carries on a dialogue with him, a conversation with him, if you will almost as if it's a a normal thing to do. And even though she's dialoguing with him, she actually, at the first, doesn't know what is actually transpiring. And we are told that she indeed was beguiled. She recognizes that after the fact, she tells the Lord that she indeed was beguiled, but at that time, she was ignorant of of, of what actually was transpiring, even in her perfect knowledge. I just want to pause there for a moment and consider that, that here, this this woman who also with, with Adam was made in perfect knowledge and righteousness and and holiness was beguiled was deceived by the devil the apostle paul tells us in 2 corinthians 2 and verse 11 that we are not ignorant of the schemes that the vices of satan and it is true we know that there are many ways in which satan will seek to and does successfully beguile and still deceive today, primarily through the misinterpreting and the misapplying of the Word of God, as he did also to Eve, as they're talking about what God actually had said. But Paul also writes this about Satan and and the church, he tells the church, he writes to the church in Second Corinthians 11 and verse 3, he tells the Christians there, I fear lest somehow as the serpent deceived that has beguiled Eve by his craftiness, so your minds may or might be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. 
This is something that the Apostle Paul was inspired to write to the Christian church who had received the scales falling from off their eyes, understanding the gospel with clarity, and yet he still warns them, Satan still is a powerful being. He still has this ability to deceive even Christians if God would not prevent it from happening. And we always have to be on our guard for that as well. Satan, he still goes around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour, going around as an angel of light in his deceptive ways. And so we have to constantly pray for the Spirit of God, for understanding, for enlightenment, and cling by faith to the Son of God, that we would stay close to Him and stay far from the devil. And so we know how in this story uh, that Satan tempts uh, her with, uh, that is, uh, this first woman, Eve, he tempts her with the delicious-looking fruit of the forbidden tree and with a false promise that if she would briefly disobey God and eat of it, she would really be enlightened to real truth. And in a godlike sense, he, he tells her, in verse 5, knowing the true difference between good and evil. Really, it's the oldest lie in history. Just believe some unproven, fictitious assertions, and then you'll really see, and you'll really grasp truth. That is contemporary, isn't it, today, as it was in the time when it was first spoken. And we know how the story goes. She falls hook, line, and sinker, if you will, for the devil's deception. She eats of the forbidden fruit. She hands it over to Adam, who is with her, chapter 3 and verse 6. And he stood silently by her side. He also takes of the fruit of the tree. And indeed, then both of their eyes are opened. But not in the way that the devil had promised that their eyes would be opened. They wouldn't be enlightened. Uh, They would simply be enlightened now to their shame and to their nakedness. And so they sow fig leaves together. They sow clothing. And they go and hide themselves from the presence of God. But God, of course, knows all things, doesn't he? He knows children, teenagers, adults. He knows us. He knows where we are. He knows our thoughts. He knows our words. He knows our activities. He knows us better than we know ourselves. And God knows where Adam is. But yet he asks him, Adam, where are you? And maybe there was a sense in that, uh, that he was asking Adam, where are you? But I think mostly he's asking Adam, Adam, where are you in relation to me? You once ran into my presence in the cool of the day, but now you're fleeing away from my presence. Adam, where are you? And so even before this first gospel promise, God is doing something graciously and mercifully. He's going to seek out his his straying sheep. He's calling Adam and Eve to to a saved relationship with him. Once again, they had fallen 
and come short of the glory of God. They were, they were, they were sinners. They were the first sinners on the face of this earth. But here God, in His mercy, He brings them back, if you will, to Him. Adam, Adam, where are you? And you know, really, that's the whole, uh, the whole uh, pattern of the Word of God, isn't it? Mankind running and turning away from God, seeking to get as far as we can from God. But God, in His tremendous mercy, pursuing sinners, calling sinners, saving sinners, bringing sinners into relation, saving relationship with Himself. It's a mercy of what God does. But then God, in His judicial capacity, He faces them with the facts of their sin. In verse 11, He probes their consciences. And as typical fallen human beings, as He uh, seeks to expose them to uh, their sin and does expose them uh, to their sin, uh, both Adam and his wife, they both pass the buck, if you will, and uh, they, uh, they plead in a certain sense uh, that they're victims of uh, their, their activities, and they're not so much the perpetrators. And the man said, verse 11, the woman who you gave God to be with me, she gave me of the tree, and I ate. In other words, I'm, I, 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 I just did what I was told, and, and, and I'm kind of the victim in all of this. And verse 13, and the Lord said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, well, the serpent deceived me. And I ate. And so they're, they're, they're passing the buck, if you will. Then verse 14, So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, you are cursed more or above all the cattle and more than every beast of the field. And on your belly shall you go all the days of your life. And you shall eat dust all the days of your life. And so the Lord curses the devil. He curses the devil in the form of a serpent for his part in mankind's fall in paradise. And it is in this context that the Lord, continuing to speak to the devil, and in the presence of Adam and his wife, and recorded for you and I to read thousands of years later, he says, I will put enmity between thee and the woman, between thy seed and her seed, and it shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. And so you see, it's against this backdrop, this terrible black backdrop of original sin, this darkest chapter in the Bible, at the glorious light of the gospel, it begins to, to shine. It doesn't shine in all of its full a full-orbed glory yet. But here's a sliver of light beginning to shine to reflect the, or point to the true light of the gospel, even the Advent Savior, Jesus Christ himself. But we have to ask ourselves also this morning, how do we know that this is actually a gospel promise at all? History is rife. History is full of, of detractors of that very truth and reality. There's many people who study the Bible, and we would say we, they, they're coming to incorrect conclusions, but they read Genesis 3 and verse 15, and they say, this isn't a gospel promise. 
This is just some word about a snake and, and God speaking and whether we can believe it's true, yes or no, and many detractors say. But how do we know that this is a gospel promise at all? Well, as we think about Jesus being born, we are familiar, aren't we, with the New Testament record that we find and we commonly refer to and read the details of in Luke chapter 2. That it came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. And this taxing was first made when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be taxed, every one to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee, out of the city of Nazareth, unto Judea, unto the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was the house and lineage with David, to be taxed with Mary, his espoused wife, being great with child. And so it was, that while they were there, the days were accomplished, that she should be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling clothes, laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. Luke, the gospel writer, is inspired to give the most detail, the most historical details about the wonderful nativity, uh, the birth of the Son of God. And that one that bare him, that was carrying the Lord Jesus was uh, this young virgin girl named Mary. Uh, she was engaged, a spouse engaged to Joseph, and she was carrying this child, we are told very plainly and clearly in Scripture, uh, that did not come from the seed of Joseph because they had not known one another in an intimate way, uh, but it was from, this child was from the Holy Spirit, Luke 1 and verse 35. And so she bears this promised Messiah, whom the Lord had told Joseph in a dream, Matthew 1 and verse 21, that his name is to be called Jesus, because he shall save his people from their sins. And so here in Genesis 3, in verse 15, we find a, a prophecy. We find an allusion uh, to the arrival and the work of this great Savior. But how do we know, how do we really know that this verse, this familiar text, is not just talking about snakes and people? Well, let's look at, at each phrase of this uh, verse, and let's break it down and consider what it really means. And so God, speaking again to Satan in the presence of Adam and his wife, says, and I. Let's just stop there for a moment. I, and I. This is God's word. This is God's declaration. Now, of course, when we turn to the Bible, the whole of the Bible is the word of God, isn't it? We turn to passages, like when Peter says, depart from me, I am a sinful man. That's the word of God. 
when we find expressions of the Word of God of unbelief and of disobedience, the record of sinners and saints alike, we find the witness of that written down on the page of Scripture. That is the Word of God. But here we find the Word of God, the very voice of God in the Word of God. This great, great creator of heaven and earth. The one who, as the great sovereign one said, here is trees you may eat, here is one tree you may not eat of, and the day you eat thereof, you will surely die. It is this God who now declares, and I... It is the King of kings speaking. It is the Lord of lords speaking. God is speaking to Satan. God is speaking to Adam and his wife. God is speaking in this text this morning to you and I. And he says, I. I will put enmity I will put a division. Literally, that's what the word enmity means between thee, Satan. Thee is the singular reference between you, Satan, and the woman. I just pause there again for a moment. Now think carefully with me here. In original creation... There had been this wonderful, wonderful unity between who? Between God and his first created couple, Adam and his new wife. They would rush into his presence of the cool of the day. They enjoyed this beautiful unity with their creator, God. He was their father in the full sense of the word as being creator. He was their spiritual father. And it was everything in this beautiful, wonderful relationship. There was perfect unity. But then original sin was ushered in through Adam's disobedience. And that unity was broken, wasn't it? And now there is disunity. There is disharmony between God and Adam and his wife. But there is a new unity. There is a unity now between the devil and between this first woman and between Adam as well. There is this this unity, dear. They agreed together. Matthew Poole... He he says it this way, that they were leagued together. They formed a league together. They had agreed together in original sin. And now God, you see, in his first act of judicial and yet merciful, merciful work, he comes along and he says, I will put enmity. I will put division between you, Satan, and the woman. 
And so what we find here, we find God at work. We find God at work in His mercy right after the fall, undoing what we as mankind had ruined. There is divine mercy, you see, in this division. God says, I will not allow my redeemed children to be united with the devil. I will not allow it to happen. I will put enmity. God just doesn't hope for it. God doesn't pray for it. God doesn't wish it will happen. God declares it to be, and just like an original creation, it was so. I will put enmity. I will put division. He writes the wrong. He puts the, the mark, the, a division where it is rightly supposed to be between Christians and between Satan. And so you see, every time that we would agree with Satan in any way, shape, or form, we are violating God's wise and merciful act. And every time we sense this division between ourselves and and Satan, we ought to be reminded that this was a, a, a merciful act of God. Whenever we feel this repulsion toward the acts of darkness and the king of darkness, we ought to be reminded that that is not inherent within us. It's because God says, I will put division. It's God's work of mercy. It's God's work of wisdom. It's God's work of division. I will put enmity. I will put division between you, Satan, and between the woman. But God is not done speaking to Satan yet. And he goes on to say, between your seed, and really implied, I will put enmity, I will put division, that's implied, between your seed, your seed, Satan, and between her seed. Now, what are these references to Satan's seed and her seed? Let's take them one at a time. First of all, Satan's seed or the devil's seed. What does that mean? Well, the New Testament sheds at least a little bit of of light on this. When Jesus was speaking to the Pharisees as he commonly did, He said in John 8, in verse 44, You are of your father, the devil. And the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks of his own resources, for he's a liar. And he is the father of it. And so I believe we can safely say here that the seed of the devil is unbelievers. In other words, those who don't truly follow Jesus. And it's a sobering reality that they can be outwardly religious people just like the Pharisees. But the seed of the serpent can be also as implied in John 8 devilish acts, murder, 
not standing for truth that is as it is in Christ or embracing lies. And so God says, I will put enmity, I will put division between the seed of Satan, his children, and the horrible things he teaches them, and her seed. Now, what is her seed? This is a reference to no less than Jesus himself. Yes, it's a faint reference, but it's a clear reference to Jesus himself. And and how do we know that that expression, her seed, is a reference to Jesus? Well, there's, there's several reasons, actually, for that. First of all, every time you, you read about seed in the Bible, it's always in relation to the male. Always in relation to the male. For example, we, we find uh, Abram's seed, Genesis 17 and verse 9, uh, Galatians 3 and verse 16. He's speaking about seed there, and, and you find that repeated about Isaac's seed and about Jacob's seed and, and so forth. But here we find a reference to this, the woman's seed, her seed. There's no male referred to. And why is that? Well, because Joseph was not the father of her seed. God was the father of her seed. Her seed is a reference to no less than Jesus himself. And the allusion to her is an allusion to to the Virgin Mary and uh, we, we know that as well because the woman is, is in the singular, her is in the singular, and also seed is in the singular. It's not in, in the plural uh, form, it's in the singular form. And so the Lord is saying here, I, the Lord, will put enmity, but put division between thee, Satan, and the woman, that's Eve, and also between thy Seed, Satan's seed, that is unbelievers and their sin, and her seed, that is Jesus. And so, Jesus in Christianity and the works of darkness, you see, are incompatible. And that just really is a, a pre-echo, if you were, if you will, of that which Jesus said so plainly, didn't he, during his earthly ministry. And he says, you're either for me or you're against me. There's no middle ground in relation to me. And as we pause for a moment and, and bring that home in, in terms of application to us, also in this Advent season, we have to ask yourself, dear congregation, are we a follower of Jesus Christ? Are we born again? Do we exercise true faith in him? Or are we not? You see, there's no middle ground in relation to the Son of God. Now, we may wish there was some gray area between being an unbeliever and being a believer But there isn't. Jesus says, you're for me or you're against me. There is a division between the two. 
that God has asserted, that God has declared. And yes, it is true that sometimes true believers can struggle, of course, with assurance of faith, wondering if I am a child of God, yes or no. That's a reality that many Christians may struggle with in their lifetime, hopefully grow uh, to greater maturity uh, with the knowledge and being able to say with Thomas, my Lord and my God. But also this morning, here and around this world, there are two classes of people who walk on the face of this earth. No matter if we're young, if we're old, if we're teenagers, if we're toddlers, believers in Jesus or not believers in Jesus Christ. And I pray that by the grace of God that we would be a believer in the Son of God. In fact, I exhort you if you don't know Jesus today to be reconciled with God. It is the only way to live. It is the only way to give God the glory It is the only way to die. We must be born again. God puts the division there. I, the Lord, will put enmity, division between you, Satan, and the woman, and between thy seed, Satan, and between her seed. And so we find here a reference, a prophecy to Jesus and his work the first time in world history. But furthermore, the text isn't done yet, is it? It shall bruise thy head. God's still speaking directly to, to Satan. It shall bruise your head, Satan. Satan's head will be crushed. Jesus, God is saying, will inflict the death blow, if you will, to Satan. The New Testament affirms that, 1 John 3 and verse 8, For this purpose the Son of God was manifested, that is revealed, that he might destroy, that is crush, the works of the devil. In Hebrews 2 and verse 14, we are told there of the work of Jesus that through or by his death he might destroy him that has the power of death, that is the devil. It shall bruise thy head, the Lord says to Satan. Jesus delivers the crushing blow. The Advent Savior, who is that meek and mild baby who is laid in a manger in Bethlehem. He is no meek and mild babe anymore. He is the victorious, conquering king who lived the perfect life, who died the perfect Death, And in that perfect death, he crushed the very head of Satan. He fulfilled this glorious promise. But finally, the prophecy ends that thou, Satan, shall bruise his, that is Jesus, heal. That's a reference to the suffering of Jesus that he experienced, particularly on the cross. Jesus, like the devil, would experience something in this epic contest between good and evil. But Jesus, unlike the devil, would be the victorious one, 
completely crushing Satan's head, but yet experiencing a bruised heel of suffering. Martin Luther, he could say things so uniquely, he said this, that even though the devil has much power in his tail, I thank God his head is crushed. Jesus, in his great work, does his great act of redemption. And beside this, there's at least a symbolic reference to some of this in Revelation 12, where John in his vision, he, he writes Revelation 12 and verse 5, that she brought forth a man child who was to rule over all the nations with a rod of iron. And if you're familiar with your Bibles, that reference, the rod of iron, is a language very similar to Psalm chapter 2, where we find a reference of the Lord speaking to his Lord, that is the Father in heaven speaking to, uh, to his Son, Jesus. It's a reference to the Son of God uh, that she will brought forth a man-child who is to rule the nations with a rod of iron, and her child shall be caught up unto God, Revelation, John writes in Revelation 12, upon, uh, to his throne, and verse 9, And the great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil and Satan, which deceived the whole world, and he was cast out. And so Genesis 3 and verse 15 is the first gospel promise in world history. It's God promising in seed form, if you will, in promise format, that the Messiah is coming, that he would be victorious. He would be victorious over Satan, over sin, and over the fallen world. And it's a bright and a glorious truth a wonderful beam of sunshine that shines clearly and and brightly in this otherwise dark and tragic chapter in the Bible. It is the, the first spark, if you will, the first spark that kindles this glorious fullness that would be revealed in the New Testament time in He who is the Son of God. Of God. And so God promises right on the very heels of the greatest sin, the original sin in history, in paradise, right on the heels of that sin that He would restore through His only begotten Son. And just the way you and I receive the gospel. So Adam and his wife, they receive the blessings of the gospel, albeit in a different form. It's in promise form only. Now we may hear both the promise and fulfillment in New Testament time, but it was the word of God then, just as it is now. And that which Peter wrote in 1 Peter 1 and verse 24 is as true then as it was today. All flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man is as the flower of the grass. The grass withers, the flower thereof falls away, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Now this 
is the word which by the gospel was preached unto you. God was preaching the gospel to Adam and Eve. He was declaring that the Son of God would be born in the fullness of time, born under the law to redeem those who are under the law. This is the wonderful news of salvation that is found alone in the Son of God. And so take courage. Take courage, dear Christian. Sin is very real, yes. Sin has its tragic consequences attached to it, yes. But sin and sinners and the father of sin, the devil, are only temporary in a certain sense, at least for our experience in this life. And why is that? Well, it's all because of the finished work of the glorious Advent Savior, Jesus Christ. Paul encourages the struggling sinner, doesn't he? In the book of Philippians in chapter 1 and verse 6, that he was confident of this very thing, that he who has begun the good work in you, he will complete it. He will bring it to pass unto the day of Jesus Christ. God doesn't do half redemption. God doesn't work half salvation, both on the cross and by the Holy Spirit in our hearts. So keep on trusting in him. Keep on hoping in him. Don't let up believing in him. Satan wants you to stop praying to God. Satan wants you to stop believing the promise of the Lord. Satan wants you to believe that it's just the word of God is just not true at all. Satan wants to deceive you, and he works overtime to do it. But believe, dear friend, believe the word of God. Believe the gospel promise. Believe also this first gospel promise that God will put a division where a division needs to be put. And God will send his son. And God did send his son so that sinners like you and I may be saved. So be encouraged that there's hope and there's light in God. Sin has broken so many things, has broken so many people, and has broken so many relationships in this world. We have broken so many things as human beings. We have messed so many things up. But God graciously intervenes. And sometimes we look at the world, don't we? And we say, where is it all going? It's all so dark. Sin is dark. It is. It's terrible. It brings tragedy along with it. It brings brokenness along with it. But don't end on that low note. Look up. Look up to this glorious Savior whose word never, never, never changes. Look up to this Advent Savior. He is the ultimate reason why God does all that He does. Even bringing and allowing 
tragedy to come into this world. His glorious salvation is still available. And so God holds out hope for His people. He holds out hope for a fallen world. He didn't leave our first parents without hope. And He doesn't leave us without hope as well. He stretches out His arms. He did to Adam and Eve. And He still does to us today in the fullness of the gospel. And says, come unto me, all that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, you, Satan, and the woman, Eve, between your seed and her seed, that's Jesus, and he shall bruise your head, he shall crush your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Praise God for his redemptive work through Jesus Christ the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Good and glorious God, how we do give thanks so much and praise that you would not leave Adam and Eve in their sin and in despair, but so quickly upon that first tragic sin, you gave this proto-evangel, this this first promise of the gospel, this original gospel to overshadow and overwhelm their first sin. Lord, how good and how faithful Thou art. And we pray that we too would feel the very echoes of Thy faithfulness and into this very day, that our hearts would be melted by Thy faithfulness and how Thou dost not change and art the same yesterday, today, and forever. We give thanks and praise for who Thou art and what Thou dost continue to do. Dismiss us, we pray, with thy favor and blessing. Go with us. Give us a good day of rest on this Lord's day. And bring us back again this evening hour to hear what the Spirit has to say also to this church family. In Jesus Christ we pray all these things. Amen.